Uh, you guys can have a seat. I want to give a quick shout out to the handsome gentleman in the front row right here who brought me my Christmas earrings that I forgot to wear this morning. So let's give Phil Schultz just a round of applause. What a hero. Save the day. <laughs> Good morning. Today is the last Sunday of Advent. So if you are visiting with us or new to the season of Advent, Advent simply means arrival. It's the time leading up to Christmas where we look back at when Jesus first arrived in this world and we look forward to what we're promised in scripture, that he will arrive again. We remember that God's people, Israel, waited and anticipated and longed for the promised Savior to come and God was faithful in sending Jesus. And now as people living 2,000 years after Jesus first came, we sit in a similar place of waiting and anticipating and longing for him to come again. This Advent in particular, we've been asking the question, what child is this? Who is this Jesus whose return is our great hope? And is he worth the wait? We've been looking at what theologians call the offices of Jesus, his jobs or the roles he plays. Two weeks ago, we explored Jesus's first office and we discovered that Jesus is a prophet. As a prophet, Jesus proclaims the words of God to people. Through his words, we saw that just like the prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus cares deeply about justice and righteousness, and he communicates to the people around him that these things are close to the heart of God. Last week, Stephen talked about Jesus' second office, that Jesus is a priest. Because of Jesus, we can come into the presence of God anytime, directly, with confidence, bringing all of ourselves just as we are. Stephen said, we can go to God and know that we are already forgiven for what we have done, and for what we have left undone, for the ways we have not loved God with our whole hearts and the ways we have not loved others as ourselves. He said, when God looks at us, he sees the perfection of his son. That's true for us who have accepted his grace. Jesus is a priest. He's the only mediator that we need. This week, we're looking at the third office of Jesus. Theologians describe Jesus' roles in three ways. Jesus is a prophet, Jesus is a priest, and Jesus is a king. Let's jump in and trace through Jesus's life to see where he's claiming to be or where he's considered to be a king. If you remember back to the first Sunday in Advent, we read Luke 1 about the angel who visits Mary and foretells Jesus's birth. He says, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus is foretold to be a king, and his genealogy shows he's a descendant of the greatest king of Israel, David. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the expected king who was to come to save the Jews. Week two, we saw that Jesus is treated as a king by the Magi or wise men in Matthew 2. They follow a star a long, long way to bring gifts to this toddler king. Jesus grows up, and when he's about 30, he begins his three-year public ministry. And during that time, people identify him as a king. John records an interaction between Jesus and a man named Nathaniel, who becomes one of Jesus' 12 closest disciples. It's a really fun encounter. Here's how John describes it. Jesus is beginning to call the 12 disciples. He's collecting them left and right. He gets Andrew and Peter on board, and then John writes, The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? 
Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite, in him there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. The first impression we get of Nathanael is that he is skeptical and snarky. He scoffs at the mention of Nazareth, Jesus' podunk hometown. Then Jesus starts to tell Nathanael things about himself that lead Nathanael to do a complete 180 and change his tune to declare, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. You're the Messiah, the promised savior, the king we've all been waiting for. And Jesus' reply is great. Kid, you ain't seen nothing yet. Jesus' disciples follow him not just as a prophet or a priest or a teacher or rabbi or even as a healer or miracle worker, but as a king. They believe him to be a king. When Jesus is in the womb or when he's a toddler, he doesn't get a chance to respond when people call him a king. But now Jesus is an adult, so the way he responds is important for us to pay attention to. Jesus doesn't deny Nathanael's recognition of him as a king. He doesn't push back or say, no, no, I'm just a regular guy, just a teacher or a good person. In fact, Jesus identifies himself as a king in his teaching about the end times. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 25. He says, when the Son of Man, that's a nickname for himself, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king, still speaking about himself, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or in prison or sick and not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, ever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I'm guessing most of you have heard this teaching before, but do you see the picture Jesus is painting of what his vision is for the future? Jesus is telling his followers what it will be like when he is on the throne, reigning as a king. He's a king who cares about justice. He's a king who has compassion for the poor and needy and hungry and lonely and sick and imprisoned. He's a good king, but he's a king. He's claiming to have that kind of power and authority owed only to the most supreme figure in a territory. Jesus identifies as a king in his ministry and teaching and He identifies as a king in what's known as the triumphal entry. 
All four Gospels record this, and you're probably familiar with the story. We celebrate this event each year on Palm Sunday. Let's read John's account. John 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, the crowds gather around and wave palm branches and line the road with their coats. The scene is like a parade, a royal procession. It's how a king would enter the city. But Jesus was not the kind of king the crowd of Jews expected him to be. Jews in the time of Jesus expected the coming Messiah or king to be a political ruler, a mighty warrior who would come to overthrow the Romans and establish national Jewish independence again. But that's not the kind of king that Jesus came to be. In Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, the crowds missed a key detail in his advent or arrival. Jesus did not come as a mighty warrior, riding in on a big horse to symbolize that he meant war. He came humbly on a donkey, showing his business was peace. They didn't catch on right away, but the tide against Jesus turned pretty quickly. He wasn't there to be the kind of king they wanted him to be, and they were disappointed. Jesus was celebrated as a king on Sunday, and then he was mocked as a king in his death on that Friday. Let's read John's account. This is mere days later. Jesus has been betrayed, arrested, and is on trial. John writes, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe, the color of royalty, and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to the law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. 
The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. The angel told Mary that Jesus would be a king. The Magi brought him gifts fit for a king. The disciples recognized and identified Jesus as the promised savior, the coming king. Jesus himself spoke of a kingdom where he would be sitting on the throne, judging and ruling as king. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, he was celebrated and praised as a king. And then in his death, Jesus was mocked as a king. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus died without a kingdom, is he a king? We know that Jesus was raised from the dead, but even so, he stuck around for 40 days and then ascended into heaven. He never presided as a king over a kingdom on earth. So is he really a king, after all? Say he is. Then what is Jesus the king of, or the king over? What is his realm of jurisdiction? Jesus' kingdom is not like other natural kingdoms that we can see that are limited to a specific time and place. But he claims to be and is a king. Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God, or Matthew likes to call it the kingdom of heaven. That's Jesus' kingdom. Luke writes, once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus is king over an invisible kingdom, a spiritual kingdom that has a present existence here and now. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God. Anywhere that God rules and reigns, that is his kingdom. Jesus' kingdom has a partial present existence, but it will also have a fully realized future manifestation. There's a big theological term for this, inaugurated eschatology. It's used to describe the end of all things, and it means already and not yet. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came. Someday in the future, he'll come back. We live in the time in between. In this in-between time, Jesus is king now and not yet. The end of the story is here now and not yet. Jesus has inaugurated or begun or set into motion the end of all things. The ball is rolling in the right direction. The dominoes are falling and cannot be stopped. Jesus is king, reigning on his throne already, but we only see it in part. We get glimpses now, but someday this will be fully realized. We've been mostly reading passages today from John's account of Jesus' life. John was one of Jesus' 12 closest disciples and was even in the circle of the inner three. Jesus' three best friends were Peter, James, and John. When John was an old man, he had a vision from God that he wrote down, and we know it today as the book of Revelation. It's a complex book, but it's the last book in the Bible because it gives us a glimpse of the end of the story. John's vision is about where this world is headed, how this grand narrative of history that God has been writing from the beginning is going to end. John writes about Jesus' second coming, about his advent or arrival when Jesus will come not humbly on a donkey, but as a warrior ready to conquer and defeat his enemies once and for all and reign as king over everything, over the entire universe. 
Revelation 11:15 says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. In the next chapter, John writes, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Instead of reigning in part in some spiritual sense, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of God. The physical and spiritual will be fully overlapped with Jesus reigning over it all. John declares, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, Jesus. The enemy has been defeated. Jesus is king. John writes about what the world will be like when Jesus is king over all. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In the next chapter, John writes, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The chapter continues with Jesus saying three times, I am coming soon. And the chapter and book ends with John saying, Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. This is the very end of the Bible. He's coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus. We so long and look forward to the day when Jesus will return because this is the end of the story. Jesus is king. He reigns over everything. There is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. No longer will there be any curse. God's dwelling will be among his people. Don't miss the symmetry here from the beginning of the story to the end. Remember the Garden of Eden way back in Genesis? At the very beginning, God dwells with his people in a perfect world that he made. But then sin enters the picture and messes everything up. The world is cursed and life gets hard. Everything is broken. People's relationships with creation, with each other, with themselves, and with God. Jesus comes and makes a way for people's relationships with God to be restored, but he leaves satisfied to reign only in part for a time. When he comes back, he'll return to reign fully. The kingdom of God will be fully realized. No longer will there be any curse. God's enemies will be vanquished once and for all, and he will create a new heaven and a new earth where he will reign forever in the presence of his people. The idea that Jesus is king is our hope in Advent because this is the end of the story and it's a happy ending. The picture John paints of the end is not really of an end at all, but of a new beginning. This is the hope of all those who follow Jesus. All the pain we've experienced, all the losses we've suffered, that all we've had to endure will be worth it in the end. 
We read these verses and we cling to this picture where all will be made right, where good will triumph over evil, where justice will prevail. And so we long and wait for his advent. We look back and see God's faithfulness that he sent Jesus once as a baby. We look forward and anticipate that Jesus will return as a king. We can't wait for Jesus to come back and make everything new and right again and rule and reign forever. We remember and we remind each other over and over again, year after year, that Jesus is king and the wait for him will be worth it. But I know it's easy to give up hope in the waiting. It's hard to see Jesus as the king of the world because that's not our felt reality here and now. Right now, his kingdom is hidden. We just get glimpses. We say that our mission at New Denver is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. But our vision for what this looks like is new lives, new Denver, new world. This is where the name New Denver Church comes from. This is what it looks like for Jesus to reign as king. First, our vision is that Jesus would reign as king over our lives, that our whole hearts and our whole lives would be completely surrendered to him, and that Jesus would make our lives new by transforming us to be more like himself. Then we envision Jesus reigning as king over our city and finally as king over the entire world, making everything new. But when we think about Jesus as reigning king now, already, I think it's most important that we focus on that first one, new lives. This is the question I want us to wrestle with this week. Is Jesus your king? What does it look like for Jesus to be king in our lives, to make our lives new with him on the throne? If we want to get glimpses of King Jesus, ruler of everything, it starts with us. Is Jesus your king? Is your life fully surrendered to the rule and reign of Jesus? Or are there places where you're trying to be your own king? Because let's be real, we would all rather be our own king. It's built into us. It's part of our sinful nature. My three-year-old Eva would rather be her own king. She thinks she knows what's best even when she's clearly mistaken. If it was up to her, she would be eating cookies and watching Daniel Tiger all day long. And who can blame her, really? I like sweets and TV, too. My 20-month-old Bailey would rather be her own king. Watch this. This is real-life footage from this last week. the very end. She says no again. <laughs> the power struggle is real. When she doesn't get her way over the smallest thing, oftentimes these days she's throwing herself on the ground in a screaming tantrum. And then of course the one day that I actually kind of want her to do that so I can show you all, she does that and then I try again and she does this. Okay, Bailey, are you ready to go home? <laughs> Such a little sweetheart. But spend some time around kids, and you'll see they all want to be their own king. It's my job to parent my girls, to set rules and boundaries that are healthy and that will help them flourish, because at this stage of their lives, I know what's best for them way more than they do. 
When we're adults, we kind of get to act like we're the kings, making the decisions for our own lives and for our own households. But this just highlights that we have the same problem that kids do. We all want to be the king. We all want to make the rules. We think we know what's best. It takes a posture of humility to recognize that when we humans try to be our own kings, we just mess things up. This is why the world is broken. We did this from the very beginning in the garden, trying to usurp the place of God so that we could be the king. What does it look like for Jesus to be king in our lives? Surrendering your life to King Jesus means first and foremost acknowledging that you are not your own king. Your wisdom, your perspective is nowhere near the vantage point of God. You're no bigger next to him than a baby with an itty-bitty body and an oversized attitude. We think we know what's best. We don't. It's better that he is on the throne. When Jesus comes back and asserts his authority as king over everything, the world will be made perfect the way it's supposed to be. Don't we want glimpses of that now? What it takes for Jesus to be king in our lives is that we must get to know his heart so we can love and value the things he does. And we must be surrendered to his ways, his rules, his boundaries for us. The best way to learn the heart and ways of God is through scripture. Uncovering the truth of scripture from cover to cover is the best way to continue to figure out who God is, who Jesus is, and we can learn what it looks like to live in his kingdom. Because Jesus didn't only come to save us from our sins or to be a prophet or a priest, but to show us how to live in his kingdom. King Jesus demands our total allegiance. When we commit our lives to following him, he gets it all. He gets access to everything, every part of our heart, all our passwords. Nothing is withheld from him. He's the king of the universe, and he wants to be the king of your life. Is Jesus your king? It's a big question. Better questions might be, what does it look like for Jesus to be the king in my marriage, in my parenting, when I'm with my friends, when I'm at school or at work? How can I honor King Jesus with the things I think, with how I handle my emotions, with the choices I make? Am I fully surrendered to his ways when it comes to my finances or how I spend my time or how I treat my body? Have I given into vices or habits or beliefs that are contrary to his best for me? If Jesus was living my life, if Jesus had my job, if Jesus had my family, how would he respond to the situations I find myself in? I hate to say it, but I kind of think what this all boils down to is WWKJD. What would King Jesus do? Let's make bracelets. Better not. <laughs> we all want to be our own king. But there is only one true king, and his name is Jesus. The more we search the scriptures and keep asking the question, what child is this, the more we'll get to know the heart of this king. He's a good king. He's a just king. He's the only one fit to sit on the throne. We long for him to come and reign, but we don't have to just twiddle our thumbs and wait. Jesus is king already, and not yet. He's the king of the universe, and he's the king of our lives. Let's keep getting to know him so that when our will bumps up against his, as is going to happen, we'll be able to identify that there's a conflict and we'll have the option to choose to surrender. To say, you know, Jesus, I wouldn't do it this way. I even feel like my way is better. But I trust you. Okay, your way. We can pretend to be our own kings, but that's not what's best for us. 
one day we'll see. This baby we celebrate on Christmas was born into humble circumstances and placed in a lowly manger, but he will return as a reigning king. Jesus is coming back. The weary world will rejoice when Jesus is king. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are a good king. Thank you that you always know what's best and that you want the best for us. Help us to trust you more, especially when we're tempted to take control and pretend to be our own kings. We love you, God. Amen.